Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist. I tape this podcast with interest in healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is on the intersection of medicine and law. I came across an article that was written on November 2nd, 2023, and there's a link to the article in the podcast notes. And it is about Dr. David Langford, who is a pediatric intensivist. And uh, basically, he was trying to get out of a non-compete clause uh, from his contract with a, a healthcare system called Lutheran Hospital in Fort Wayne. And as you could imagine, this led to a legal battle between Dr. Langford and his legal representatives uh, against the hospital system. And I was really not only intrigued by the story, but uh, certainly touched by it because every physician has actually gone through contract negotiations and there's always this non-compete clause as part of these contracts. A non-compete pretty much tells you uh, that you just cannot leave us and work either for yourself or with a competitor for a set number of years within set a distance of miles. Uh, and we'll go over this. But, uh, you know, there's there's really um, a lot of angst amongst uh, physicians when it comes to non-compete. You could see the value from the employer perspective if they are investing a lot of time and effort in the employee and then the employee takes that and leaves and competes directly with them. But also from an employee perspective, you know, the employee is probably, when you're a physician, you rely on your employer in the first couple of years, but after that, you really rely on yourself. You're really getting the referrals on your own. You're really getting a lot of work on your own by being a good doctor, by also um, being able to generate more referrals and things of that nature. So it's not really always that you're relying on your employer. Furthermore, the non-compete, by the way, is state dependent. So uh, Dr. Langford practice, uh, practices in the state of Indiana, and I've asked him to come on the show to describe his case as well as his legal representative, uh, Counsel uh, Alex uh, Pantos, who is from the law firm of Delaney and Delaney uh, in the uh, state of Indiana. The idea was to highlight more about this topic and really understand what happened in this lawsuit and what are the next steps. You all know that I have a, a little bit of an affection to law and medicine. Um, and if you don't, it means you have not read my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. I certainly hope you can pick it up and uh, read it or listen to the audio, which was narrated by yours truly. Uh, so today's podcast addresses all issues of non-compete clause in medicine and what are uh, the uh, pluses, minuses, and next steps. And uh, I want to thank my guest, Dr. David uh, Langford, and uh, his counsel, uh, his lawyer, uh, uh, counsel Alex Pantos, for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered and giving me this exclusive interview. Before I air the podcast, which that we taped, by the way, on December 19, 2023, I'd ask you to please rate the show, subscribe to the show, and write a brief review. This goes way long in making sure that folks um, get access to the show and know more about this uh, show. 
Uh, I also would like to uh, suggest that you can watch all of these podcast episodes on my website, shadinabhan.com, or my YouTube channel, Shadinabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Without further ado, non-compete, the dilemma of non-compete clauses in um, uh, healthcare, the case of Dr. David Langford on Healthcare Unfiltered. Before we have David introduce himself, uh, Alex, maybe a little bit about you in terms of uh, uh, the scope of uh, legal practice that you do and things of that nature and where you practice. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm a primarily a labor and employment attorney. So the firm that I work at, Delaney and Delaney, uh, we primarily represent employees. Um, so we're plaintiff side labor and employment lawyers. Um, and I work a lot with physician non-competes specifically and with the broader area of restrictive covenants. So that would also include non-disparagement, non-solicitation clauses, confidentiality, confidentiality clauses, things like that. I have to ask you, is this, I mean, is there enough of that business that it's like a full-time job or do you do something else? Like, like can, can you do your entire practice, just focus on that particular aspect? Uh, I think you could. Um, I don't. So I, I'm a little bit more varied and I'm an associate at the firm. So generally I'm staffed on cases that uh, one of the two partners of the firm bring in. But um, yeah, there is. I mean, frankly, you could focus almost entirely on physicians and restrictive covenants and likely have a nine to five, five days a week. Yeah, that's amazing. And I've told you before we went on the air, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. I just uh, wasn't smart enough. David, uh, welcome uh, to Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, a little bit about you and where you practice and um, uh, the scope of your practice. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, I uh, was born and raised right outside Detroit, Michigan. I uh, went to University of Michigan for my undergrads, so go blue, um, and then did my medical school in Erie, Pennsylvania, um, and then came back to Detroit to do my residency and fellowship. So I did a pediatric residency for three years. Uh, and then did a, a pediatric critical care fellowship for three years after that. Um, and then my wife took a job kind of um, southwest Michigan. So I was looking for a job close to her. So when I finished, I took the uh, the job at Fort Wayne. So I worked at Lutheran Health Network down in Fort Wayne uh, for about five years um, until all this kind of came to a head. So, so you're, you're a hospital employee, basically, uh, I was employed by the, there's a medical group. So the oh, medical yeah. group, Lutheran Medical Group, employs all the physicians um, at the hospital itself. So sort of, sort of not hospital employed, but like a group, like a lot of people are. And was that your first job from fellowship? Yep, that was my first job right out of fellowship. Yep. So Alex, I have to tell you, for all of us in the medical profession, when we take our first job, I mean, I don't want to speak for David, but we always feel there's very little we could negotiate. Like we're just, uh, we're getting. Absolutely. Yeah. So do you review these initial employment contracts? Um, and David, I, I don't know if you had your employment contract reviewed five years ago or not. Yeah, actually, um, that's how I found uh, Delaney and Delaney is they were the ones. So when I took the job, um, it was my first time ever being to Fort Wayne, uh, first time living in Indiana. And so I just basically Googled medical employment lawyers in Indiana and they were the top rated one that came up. So that's actually how I found them initially and had them review my contract. And that was how our, uh, how our kind of 
relationship started. So actually, Before I ask Alex, uh, what feedback did they give you um, when you first uh, reviewed the contract? Did they provide comments on the contract? Uh, we're not talking finances. We're talking, you know, other aspects. Yeah, yeah, no, they were they were great. They they basically looked through it, and um, I'm sure, as you know, and a lot of listeners know, a lot of days, especially hospital lease contracts, are pretty standard. Everything is this is the contract that they give you, and a lot of it's non-negotiable. So uh, we talked about things that are you know big red flags that we really need to fight to get out of. Things that are more like orange yellow flags that not great, but you know you kind of deal with it if you have to. And other things that are like this is really good, keep this in. So they're very 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 helpful for that. Was the non-compete something that was discussed at the time five years ago? Yeah, it was. Um, and to my recollection, it was it was kind of a non-starter. It was, this is the non-compete. This is how it is. Um, back about five years ago, there wasn't as much national conversation about non-competes. It was just something that was in every contract and something you dealt with. Um, my wife had signed her contract year before, and she had one that was very similar. So it was just kind of something that you just you just took take it or leave it. And like you said, the first job out of fellowship, out of residency is, is important. You want to get a job, you trained all this time and you want to find something that you think fits and is a good area. And um, so you, you might not get everything you want, but you try and get as much as you, as you can that you want and, and go from there. And Alex, I mean, it's, you know, first job from fellowship, um, you know, most of us are looking forward to getting paid a little bit more uh, for the efforts and we really don't feel we could negotiate much. Like we don't feel, you know, it's hard to negotiate against a hospital. I mean, who, I mean, we're one person. They'll say, okay, fine. You know, we'll hire the next guy. It's not like they're really, I mean, unless you literally are super, super, super specialist and, you know, fresh of fellowship, you haven't had much to prove yourself yet. You may be it, but it just takes time. So how do you counsel your clients when you review these contracts and maybe from there, take us into how you counsel them about non-compete. Sure. So it, it's interesting that you say that. I think of all of the points in time where you can negotiate a contract with a hospital, your negotiating power is its highest as they're recruiting you, right? So that's the time to negotiate if you're going to try to change terms. I think that what you said is accurate. Negotiating power varies between subspecialties. So it depends on how in demand you are in the area. Um, clearly coming right out of fellowship, your negotiating power, even when it's at its zenith right there at the beginning, is still relatively limited. Um, I think another variable is the size of the system, right? So if you're going into a very large system, uh, it's, it's much more of a take it or leave it situation. Um, they don't want different physicians having different contract terms, particularly on things like restrictive covenants. Uh, most hospitals that I have you know, worked with or, or negotiated with, um, that's a that's a sticking point for them. We don't want one physician in this group to have a different contract provision than all the other physicians in the group. Um, so you, you make the ask, right? I, I mean, you always try uh, to negotiate out of unfavorable contract terms, whether those are restrictives or whether that's something about how you're being paid or, or whatever. Um, but the, the bargaining power is really more in the employer's hands at, at each step of the process. Um, if you've got an employee who needs a job, particularly a physician fresh out of fellowship, I mean, you can walk away, right? But that's your, that's your choice. Either you take the contract with maybe slightly more favorable terms for having a lawyer help you negotiate it, uh, or you go find a job somewhere else. Um, and I think that's the problem. 
How do you, uh, can you simplify to listeners and viewers restrictive covenant just like in, sure. a, in a without a lot of legalese, just like you know yeah. fifth, fifth, sixth grader. I think from a thirty thousand foot view, a restrictive covenant is a contract provision that applies after you stop working somewhere. So there are three broad categories generally. A non compete is is obviously the focus today, but a non compete is a restriction on performing similar services for a competitor within a certain geographical area for a certain period of time after you leave your current employer. Uh, category two is a non-solicitation. Um, so that can apply sort of in two sub areas. The first is non-solicitation of patients. So I think this comes up most commonly with um, smaller practice groups where you have, you know, a patient relationship with particular patients, you have kind of a book of business, right? Uh, for a hospital doctor, that comes up a little bit less. You're sort of taking what comes in the door rather than than maintaining a, a book of, of patient business. Um, and then the other subsection of non-solicitation is, is employee. So, uh, you know, if a doctor leaves a hospital, the contract says you can't try to get your colleagues who you worked with at the hospital to follow you to the new place. You can't try to talk them into leaving our employment to go work somewhere else with you. Um, and then the last is non-disclosure. So those are, are relatively common, um, not just for physicians, but across most industries where you can't disclose trade secrets or uh, confidential business information, um, how they generate, for example, how they generate pricing on an estimate or something if you're in the construction business. Um, I think with with physicians that comes up a little bit less in my experience generally um, there's not as much sort of proprietary business information that they're concerned about um, but for example in the in the financial services industry that would be uh your client list you know who, who are and, the clients that you is, work none, with. is none compete uh, like in other industries like let's say i'm working for a law firm i mean let's say you're working for delaney and delaney right now i mean i'm just saying are you That's an interesting able question. To, yeah. Are you able to walk out and uh, work somewhere else? I mean, is it so, in fi finance in the finance, legal, right. like so many other sectors? Yeah, yeah. I, I think they are common. So it, it's funny that you ask it that way. Lawyer non-competes are generally not allowed. So. That's These the lawyers, industry. I'm telling you, they, right? <laughs> we knew it, right? We knew it. We, we they the know system, what they're doing. Right? They know uh, what they're doing. So, and I don't know if that's true outside of Indiana, but in Indiana, my understanding is that. Um, for most attorneys, non-competes are, are illegal, um, non-enforceable. Uh, but yeah, we see them in all different industries. Um, financial services is a common one. Um, executive level positions, obviously. So if you're the CEO of a big company, they would have a non-compete in your contract. I've seen nurse contracts with non-competes in them, um, okay. RNs. Uh, okay. But yeah, we see them across awesome. different industries. So David, then you saw the non-compete. I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. it's it's one of those things where, frankly, you, you probably had a great interview, you like the practice, you like the hospital. It's not like you were thinking of leaving. I mean, did you try to say, uh, was it how many miles was it? Uh, it's 50 miles. 50 miles. Did you, 50, yeah, 50, yeah. Well, like I mean, did you try to say, can I lower it to 30, 20, 10? Like, did you try to say, okay, keep it, but can I, like, what did you try to do with it? Yeah, so it, it was an interesting it was an interesting discussion for me because being in the pediatric ICU world, there's only a few pediatric ICUs. I can't go start my own pediatric ICU in the community. 
Um, you have to be in a big enough city that can support a pediatric ICU. You need the other subspecialists to help you with it, cardiology, uh, neurology, that kind of thing. So um, for where I looked in Fort Wayne, there's really only two pediatric ICUs. So the in my my assumption and, and the reason they did it this way is because it blocked out the other hospital in the area. Um, because if I wanted to go work in Indianapolis or Chicago, up at Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, those are all well without like well outside of the range itself. So whether it was 50 miles, 100 miles, really even 150 miles, it didn't matter to me because there was no picky within that radius. So whatever the radius they set, I think is I think as long as it excluded their direct competitor, they were happy with it. So got it. Yeah. And, and you know, it's it's one of those things, like I put myself let's say i'm you i'm i'm hiring you mm -hmm. and you're coming and negotiating with me the non compete it's not easy it's like almost you're negotiating prenuptial with with, with your wife or significant other right and it's like yeah. wh what are you planning like why are you yeah. really so uh are there like i mean i don't know like how do you even negotiate that yeah it's it my my personal opinion on non competes is is complicated but it's kind of I mean, we're unfiltered. It's kind of a slap in the face. It's kind of, we're assuming you're going to leave at some point. So we're going to stop you. There's no, yeah. there's no belief that you're going to stay forever. So like I can say, I mean, I stayed for five years. I loved my job. I enjoyed it. I liked the people I worked with, the nurses, the techs, the docs. Um, but like, even before you start, they're automatically assuming you're going to leave and like trying to plan for it. It's just kind of like disheartening that that's the way that they see you. I mean, that's, that's kind of how I felt about it, but that's, it's, it's just kind of a disheartening thing, but it's part of the job, I think. So, so what happened that made you decide, um, just like better opportunity, you got bored with him. Like what, what, what got into that you made you decide that maybe I'd like to move on? Yeah. So, I mean, I wish I could say it was, it was uh, a better opportunity, but it was, certainly wasn't, I got bored. I loved my job. Um, they, the hospital made the decision. They had three pediatric hospitalists that covered the pediatric floor. And then they had four pediatric intensivists that covered the pediatric ICU. Um, and they made the decision to let the pediatric hospitalists go. And um, their decision was to have the pediatric intensivist then cover both the pediatric ICU and the pediatric inpatient floor at the same time. So my, my concern at the time was, was twofold. One, um, I felt like that was a lot of patients to take care of all at once, I mean, taking two jobs and making it into one. Um, and second, my contract specifically said that I worked in a pediatric critical care unit. Um, and so I was concerned and I felt that to have me work outside of that was a breach of my contract. Um, so that's kind of what started everything. Alex, in negotiating non-compete, are is the employee like david is he able to say in part part of the negotiation if you breach my contract i'm out of my non-compete if you uh, fire me if you fire me without cause right right uh I'm yeah out so of my non-compete you can I, so in indiana the law is that the party who breaches a contract first cannot enforce that contract against the other party so the earlier breach in time basically stops enforcement of the contract. So because of that's already the law in Indiana, you wouldn't need to negotiate for that. Um, but statutory law, so the legislature in Indiana 
has addressed that. And there are now, very recently, certain situations where if a hospital, for example, lets a physician go without cause, the non-compete is not enforceable. But yeah, I mean, it's a negotiation. You can negotiate for whatever you want to try to get. Um, there's no legal impediment to that. But I don't see employees, physician employees negotiating for that now because the law is already favorable for them. Just in the state of Indiana, to be clear. That's my understanding, yes. Now, I, so I'm licensed in Indiana, so that's what I know the most about. Right. Um, I know, you know, for example, my understanding is that in California, non-competes are not enforceable for anyone. Um, but, so it varies state to state. Okay, but help us explain what that means by non-enforceable. So let's say I am sure. I am in the state of California and I decide to leave and then my employer sues me. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only way for me not to enforce the non-compete is to hire a lawyer to counter the lawsuit and to pay thousands of dollars. I mean, it's not, I mean, if they decide to enforce it, I can't just say, well, sorry, guys, you can't enforce it. I have to get a lot of, it's like a legal battle, right? It's, and that legal battle could go on for months with a lot of money and so on, because even though it's not enforceable, the only way to not, not enforce it is in the course of law. Right. You have to get a court to say that. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if they're going to sue you now, the general process that I see is that you'd get a cease and desist letter first. So you get a letter from your former employer that says, we know that you're working for a competitor within the restricted area and we want you to stop doing that. Uh, and if you don't do that, then the next step is for your employer to file a lawsuit if they want to try to enforce the covenant. So it's a gamble, right? I mean, if you think that the non-compete is unenforceable, you can tell the employer that, but that doesn't stop them from going to court. Yeah. So you're right. It, they can, and it is a common tactic for an entity with deeper pockets than an individual physician to say, this is kind of a drop in the bucket for us. We can go to court and pay lawyers and that doesn't hurt us as much, but yes, you still have to defend the lawsuit. Um, and that does cost money. You mentioned competitor a few times. Can you mm -hmm. work for yourself, not a competitor? Can you just rent a place, lease a place and open shop? You would then be a competitor. Oh, I see. So competitor is generally defined broadly. Um, and it depends on the contract. So the contracts have, in my experience, a definition of what competitive services are. So usually it's, you know, the similar, similar or the same services that you are providing for your employer. So, yeah, I mean, if, you know, if you've got a neurology practice and there's a neurologist working for a hospital and then they go open, you know, a practice group down the street, they're a competitor. Um, so, no, I mean, under the if, you know, assuming that the contract says neurology services are competitive, then you can't do that. So, David, this mm -hmm. changed. They changed, uh, obviously, your scope of responsibility. So when they informed you with this, what did you do? Um, so the, the first thing I did was um, even at the, the meeting where they informed me, I asked specifically, do we need to look at the contract? Do we need to address the contract? And and I addressed my concerns and was told, no, it should be fine. You know, they, they gave a 90 day notice to the hospitalist. So we had about three months to figure it out. And throughout that three months, I, I was made to understand that they were going to help by giving us NPs or PAs or something to help us with the workload. Um, and unfortunately, that kind of never really came to fruition. Um, so when the time came to, to actually start this, 
um, my patient volume load went from an ICU, we had a, a seven or eight bed ICU to, you know, 20, 25 patients in a day, um, which I personally felt was not sustainable. So um, went back to them and asked them about it again and, and kind of didn't get anywhere with it. So. And, and, you know, obviously, I mean, from your standpoint, it's also about patient safety. It's not really, I mean, I think we're trained in residency and fellowship. We have put in a lot of hours, but you get to a point where if you're going to, you can do it for a few days, but uh, I appreciate you saying non-sustainable because you could make mistakes that could jeopardize someone's life. Yeah, so... especially in um, in, the, in the pediatric world, it's kind of a it's kind of different than a lot of other specialties in that it's very seasonally based. So, uh, any pediatricians out there will know the summers are slower and the winters are are brutal because you get RSV and you get flu, and now we have COVID on top of it. So, um, a light patient load in the summer doesn't doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. So this was October uh, into November. So we were just kind of waiting for the, almost the other shoe to drop for RSV season to hit. And then all of a sudden um, the ICU becomes filled with intubated babies. They get RSV and then you get the floor with kids on oxygen and high flow. So it's not, it's not simple, straightforward cases. And my concern was that if you get an ICU full of intubated kids, I, those, those to me, the sickest kids take priority. So not only are, are you not giving the time you need to other patients, I was concerned that I wouldn't be able to get the attention. So you might have a kid on the floor who's not doing well, but if I'm stuck in a room having to intubate a baby or put a line in and can't get to another sick kid, I'm, I'm personally concerned that that, ki- that patient's not going to get the care that they need and there could be something disastrous. So and definitely something very, very worried about. 2022 or 2023 we're talking uh, this was uh, about a year ago. 2022. Yeah. So you went back and you told them, hey, I, I can't keep doing this. And what happened? Um, so I, I talked to um, my attorneys, Delaney Delaney, and said, look, I feel like this is a breach of my contract. And they said, you know, we will file the paperwork. So my contract said if I felt like there was a breach, which I did, we have to give notice. And then they have 30 days to correct the breach. Um, so we gave the 30-day notice, and in that 30 days, they felt that the there wasn't a breach. They felt that they were still within the contract, um, and I disagreed. And so after the 30 days, I felt like the breach was still there, and it was not reconciled. And so I I walked away, as the contract said that it was supposed to do. After 30 days without a without a resolution of the breach, the contract is over. So, Alex, I mean, you uh, David felt there was a a breach, uh, you filed uh, paperwork, you told them there's a breach. What was the response from the group or the hostel? They said, no, this was no breach. Like how how did the conversation, why did they think there was no breach while you guys felt there was a breach? Where was the disconnect? Yeah, um, I think it's uh, just a disagreement on how to read the contract. So there are always, you know, you can argue over, the what the words in the combination that they're in the contract mean right so i think um it it is a contract interpretation argument where our argument is that the contract limits the work that dr lankford was obligated to perform to the pediatric icu and icu sedation shifts and their argument is that there's language in the contract that is broader than that so that's the fundamental argument uh on the breach of contract claim 
Um, and the way the, the way the conversation happened, so what Dr. Lankford is describing is, is what's called a notice and cure provision. And they're very common in employment contracts where either party can say, you're breaching, you need to cure within 30 days, 60 days, whatever. And if you don't cure by the end of that period, then I have the option to terminate the contract. So the, the initial conversation was, you know, we send a letter and we say, you know, we think you're breaching and um, this starts your 30 day clock. And their response to that was, we don't think we're breaching. Uh, so I think, you know, when something goes to court, there's generally a sort of fundamental disagreement between the parties. And that was the fundamental disagreement here. So is there an arbitrary usually? I mean, I uh, maybe I'm speaking another term, but isn't you like when yeah. there's like, let's say two folks um, misinterpret this before it mm -hmm. goes to court, is there arbitration where somebody can look at this and say X, Y, and Z? There can be. So arbitration and then mediation is, is sort of the less formal version of that. Those are both alternative dispute resolution forums. So uh, some contracts say you have to engage in arbitration or mediation. Um, this one, to my memory, did not. Uh, so that's generally something that the parties would agree on and say, why don't we go to mediation and, and figure this out? Arbitration, in my experience, is more of a court substitute where it's supposed to be a faster process, but it's very similar to being in regular court where you have a neutral that's actually going to decide the issue. A mediation is a um, moderated negotiation where you have a third party neutral who kind of shuttles back and forth between the parties and tries to work out a resolution of some kind. Um, in this case, the time sensitivity was um, important. You know, we wanted to get Dr. Lankford back to work as quickly as possible. And there wasn't anything in the contract that limited our dispute resolution options to either arbitration or mediation. So we thought that court was the best route uh, here. But sometimes, yeah, you can yeah. you can go to mediation or arbitration first. So David, after 30 days, you and your lawyers felt that you're out of the contract and you said, I'm going to walk out. But you just told me that it's tough to walk out because you're super highly specialized in, you know, you have to deal with PICU or NICU. So uh, did you have something lined up? Like, was there a hostel uh, within the restrictive covenant mileage that you were able to get a contract right away or what happened? No, there was, there was, um, there, there is another hospital in the network or in the network in the uh, area that has a pediatric ICU, but they, at the time were not hiring. Um, and what ended up happening is I started looking at um, jobs that were just general peds jobs, outpatient clinic jobs um, to do general pediatric because I needed, I needed a job. I trained, you know, to do pediatric ICU, but if there isn't one available, I still need to work. So I'm also trained in general pediatrics. So um, I look for jobs at clinics and um, there are a decent amount around just because Fort Wayne with the outside areas is, you know, it's not New York City. People aren't flocking to come here, so they need doctors. So there were a couple that, that I interviewed at. Um, and then what ended up happening is in uh, March, one of the pediatric intensive care doctors at the other system um, had to have surgery and was out for about 10 weeks. So they contacted me and said, hey, you're in the area, we need help because we can't have one doctor covering the pediatric ICU 24 seven for 10 weeks. That's just not realistic or safe. So would you mind coming on as like a kind of a locum's temporary fill to help out during that period? 
Um, in which I said, yeah, absolutely. I get, I get to do what I want in terms of pediatric ICU, help the community that I'm a part of, um, and, and keep my skills up, do all those kind of things. So uh, that's what I did. And I worked there for uh, about six weeks. And then my old hospital sent what Alex was, was mentioning before, sent a cease and desist to the new hospital, in which case they said, oh, we don't, we don't want to get involved. Um, so they, it's literally what it is literally what's going to be my next question. My next question <laughs> was future employers. Once you, I mean, if you're very transparent with them, which mm-hmm. obviously we all advocate transparency and you tell them, this is what's going on. I could imagine that future employers say, you know what? We don't want to deal with this because now we get sued. We get, I mean, we have enough legal battles probably on our plate. We don't really need to worry about this. I, I mean, you could imagine that even even as you are waiting to resolve the legal issue, it's very difficult to find a job because future employers don't want to deal with this mess. Yeah, and and I don't. I mean, I don't blame them. It's a big it's a big mess, especially when you're talking about you know one hospital system and, and their direct competitor across town, and you know you don't want to get involved. And so you know I don't blame them for saying, look, it's not worth the risk. Um, and at that point they only had, you know, another three weeks they had to wait out. So, you know, for them, it's easier and, and I guess cleaner is a better word to just get locums coverage from somewhere else, cover their way through and then be done with it. Um, but I, I mean, I talked to, to Alex a lot about it and say, look, does, does this make me unhirable? Like I have a doctor that, you know, not doesn't sue hospitals, but you know, you, you get to be seen as sort of like like a problem child like and people don't want to deal with it and it makes it really hard to to say look it's, it was just a one-time thing but you know it's on your record it's and it's tough it's tough i think so. alex does it make him unhirable i mean i think i think per- personally i think you know if you're an icu physician i could totally appreciate the fact that i mean th- there's a reason why you did your fellowship and training and you can always do general stuff for a couple of weeks and be a team player and move on but you can do it as a career. Otherwise, why did you do your fellowship? But I can I can see how this may be very difficult for anybody to find another job. Sure. I, I mean, unhirable, no. I, I don't think so. But I think it's the same issue as when we look at when you're signing up, where it depends. It depends on how badly they need the services. It depends on your negotiating leverage. Um, and if it's something that they can get filled with welcomes coverage uh, from a doctor that does not have, you know, legal complications coming along with them. Um, I think from an employer standpoint, uh, you're probably going to pick the one that has no legal issues, right? right. So I, I, I don't think it's unhirable. I think that it is. It makes things more difficult, certainly. So David, what happened? Now you had to leave after six weeks. Where did you go? Uh, so went went back home, uh, took care of my kids, and then went back to back to the trail looking for more jobs um, and, you know, interviewed at a couple and was, was considering taking a couple and talked to locums companies, but, you know, pediatric ICU, especially coming into the summer, because at this point it was around May ish. Um, the need is not as high in the summer because like I said, it's a very seasonal specialty. So, you know, the summer months, you don't have as many intubated kids, you don't have RSV. So, in order to get a locums job, I mean, there were the ones I was looking at that I was talking to were, you know, Montana, um, South Dakota. And your, your wife, your wife was still with the same system that you left. 
Yep. She, yeah, she's still working. Um, she was working up in Michigan, Southern Michigan at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and we were living in Northern Indiana, kind of splitting the difference between Fort Wayne and where she worked. So, um, I mean, the, the jobs I was looking at were far and I mean, to the point where I was taking plane rides and being away from my family and, but I, you know, I need to work. So it's, it's a really tough situation to be in for sure. So. So, um, did you find a job? Uh, at the time, no. So what ended up happening is I, I talked to to Alex and and Delaney and Delaney and said like, what you know, what can I do? Um, the the non compete, which once again I felt was not enforceable, but it's not. I can't give myself a job, so I have to find a hospital system that agrees with that. Um, the the question was, okay, do we do we take it to court and try and do what Alex was talking about earlier and challenge the cease and desist and and get an injunction on that so that I can work. Um, and the decision we came to is that that would be the best thing for me and my family is to try and get at least a preliminary injunction on the cease and desist so that I could work in the area and be with my family and and do the the job that I wanted. So uh, that was the the route that we chose. How easy or difficult it is, Alex, to get the injunction on the cease and desist? Difficult. Um, so a preliminary injunction proceeding. So when you when you file for an injunction, you're asking the court to issue an order telling someone not to do something or to do something, you know, either way. Um, I think restraining orders are a species of that where you're saying, you know, stay this many feet away from this person, right? So in Indiana, the law is more difficult for an employee. Um, there are certain elements that you have to show to the court for the court to grant you uh, a court order that that essentially here we were asking the court to issue an order that told Lutheran that they were not allowed to attempt to enforce the non-compete. So no more cease and desists. Um, and it's difficult to show all of those elements from an employee standpoint because the law is, is at least in my opinion, not as favorable, um, whereas it's more favorable to employers. Um, so it, it's a hard road. Uh, it's a it's a an accelerated proceeding. So we filed the complaint, which starts the lawsuit. We filed that in July, and then we had a hearing on that with witnesses and and evidence in August. Is that right, Dr. Langford? August, early August. August, and and that's right, yes, right. Um, so that's really fast for for a lawsuit. I mean, generally before you have an evidentiary hearing on something where you're actually, you know, in a courtroom questioning witnesses, you've got months to years before that happens. So it's a very quick process. Um, so that, that increases the difficulty, but, um, you know, obviously we were able to get a favorable result here and, uh, you know, we think that result was, was right. Um, we think the court did the right thing, but, uh, it's difficult. It's difficult from an employee's position. So you had the hearing in August 2023, mm -hmm. and um, what was, and you had witnesses, like, I mean, who would come in, uh, maybe help me understand who would testify in something like this, um, and then um, what was the court's ruling? You uh, maybe, maybe, David, at least who, who sure. testified on your behalf, and then we can go to the court uh, ruling from Alex. Yeah, so um, so the main the main people testifying on my behalf was was first and foremost myself. So I got up on the stand and was on the stand for uh, about an hour, hour and a half, answering questions both from my attorneys and then from the the opposing counsel. 
Um, and then we had um, one of the other physicians um, in the area that I had worked with before um, talking about um, what it means that I'm not practicing, what it does to my skills, um, what it does to my reputation in the community, uh, especially as an intensivist. If you, you know, if you don't practice those skills and, you, you know, you don't intubate anyone for a year or you don't put in lines for a year or anything like that, it's, it's not like riding a bike where you just get back on and pedal. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to, to not be able to do for a while. And um, to be perfectly frank, they're life-saving treatments. If you can't intubate a baby that's in respiratory failure, that is life and death. So it's a massive problem. Um, and then we also had um, an administrator uh, person from around the area testify about the need for pediatric ICU and pediatric care uh, for the area itself saying, look, if you have someone on the sidelines who can provide this care, the community is is hurting because it really makes a difference when you don't have the doctor with these skills able to practice. So uh, that's who that's who we had testify on our side and their side. They had um, administration mostly from uh, from their from the hospital itself talking about the conference. How was cross-examination, David? Like how did what did they cross you on? Um, like how and and how how did your lawyers prepare you for a cross-examination? Because um, what I have learned is trials are won on cross-examination. It's never on direct exam because they're always going to throw you the softballs in direct exam. Yeah, so it's funny that you say you always want to be a lawyer. I never wanted to be a lawyer. My father is a lawyer <laughs> and wanted me to be a lawyer, and I never, ever wanted anything to do with it. So um, for me going to court was extremely stressful. It's well out of my comfort zone. It's not what I wanted to do. So I was, well, I, did, I didn't say it wasn't stressful for me. I just <laughs> said I want, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so for me, it was, it was stressful, but um, you know, we, t we talked beforehand and we had, you know, we had some depositions, so we had answered questions and, you know, my lawyers, the, really the only, the only, I mean, we talked about what could come up and that kind of thing, but really the prep was, look, just go up there and just tell the truth. You know, right. you have, you have the facts on your side. Just just tell them what happened and you know how you feel and how it how it affected and um and and let the facts. Is this is this tell. a jury trial? Uh, no, it was just in front of the judge. Just just the judge. judge. So uh, how cross examination? What did the other lawyers try to do on your cross examination? Uh, Alex, you want to take that one? Sure. I, I mean, I was, uh, try, I, I was just trying to survive. Yeah, so. yeah. I I think. Um... The goal on cross is, is to poke holes, right? So, or to um, undermine credibility. That's another one. Try to catch somebody in a lie or, or whatever. Um, for, for this particular proceeding, because there are these very sort of strict elements that you have to fulfill, I think that the goal on cross was to show the court that some of those elements were not met. Um, so immediate and irreparable harm is one of them that if the court does not grant this order, you're going to immediately and irreparably be harmed by continued enforcement of the non-compete. Um, so I think that was more the focus is, is sort of working through those elements um, and then a factual background. So from the hospital's perspective, what was the actual impact on Dr. Lankford's day-to-day -day activities? Um, what are his uh, you know, medical capabilities? What is he able to do? Um, so I think those were some big areas of focus. Uh, it's difficult for sitting from my position where you work up a case and you 
are on your client's side all the way through, it's, it's sometimes difficult to predict exactly what the other side is going to try to get or how they're going to try to use testimony against your client. Um, but I think those were the, the, the sort of main points. Um, like Dr. Lankford said, I think you were on cross for 40 minutes or so. I mean, it was, it was long. Um, they also talked about the job search. So where did you look for jobs? Um, are there really not jobs available outside of this area that would have worked for you? Um, and again, that goes to that immediate and irreparable. If you can get another job, then how is this going to irreparably harm you? Um, but uh, is, is 40 yeah, I mean, minutes, is forty minutes too long on cross? I, I think that's I, short, it depends. Right? It, it depends on on what the case is, right? So, and I know that's the lawyer answer, but it just depends. It depends on the witness and what the right. facts are and how many things you need to hit. Um, I think for this proceeding, that was that your testimony was the longest. Uh, to my memory, which is common, you know, the person who's bringing the claim is is going to talk longer. Um, but just from a sort of endurance standpoint, it's it's difficult, and and clients always struggle. You know, the other sort of testifying that clients generally do is is a deposition, so that's outside of court, but is essentially an interview with a court reporter in the room. So the other lawyer gets to ask questions, and the court reporter writes down the questions and the answers. Um, so that's an evidence gathering tool, uh, but that those can be up to eight hours. So those are very difficult, and those are those are kind of a long haul. Um, but being in the courtroom, I think, is is a more stressful experience. Generally. So 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 then this is a, a judge decision. There's no jury. There's no deliberation. Does the judge say I'm gonna take a couple of days and think about everything, or does he make a decision right away? Like I mean, how does that? <laughs> so so you finished both sides, right? What happens? Yeah. Then? So. And I'm sorry, Dr. Langford, I don't mean to step on you. I think this, no, so here, we had originally asked for what's called a preliminary injunction. So that's generally a, an order that is a preliminary ruling from the court that they say, you can't do this until we figure out the case. So it's to okay. maintain the status quo. There's another procedure that you can use that's called a temporary restraining order. So temporary restraining order is shorter in duration. And uh from cases that I've I've studied, uh, they generally come before. So you would get a temporary restraining order first and then have a hearing on a preliminary injunction. So temporary restraining order is, if a preliminary injunction is fast, then a TRO is, is very fast. Um, so at the end of the hearing, we uh, asked the court to enter a temporary restraining order while it considered our request for a preliminary injunction. Um, the court, I think our hearing was on a Friday the court asked the lawyers to submit um, arguments, written arguments on the temporary restraining order the following Monday. And then the court issued the temporary restraining order in our favor the next day. So that was very fast and that allowed Dr. Lankford to get back to work that week. Uh, and then um, the common phrase is the court will take it under advisement. So basically what that means is the court will think about it, look over your papers and then issue a decision. And the preliminary injunction ruling was I don't remember how long after that, but we submitted some more, you know, argument, written arguments, and then the court made its decision. But where did you return to work? I mean, at the time you did not have a job, no? Yeah. So I, um, once the temporary restraining order uh, was granted, then the hospital, the other hospital in town was comfortable with it because now a court has said that I can oh, work. Wow. So I went back to work as uh, basically as an independent contractor because um, they, did, they didn't want to do like a full long-term contract not knowing with the preliminary injunction still out there and it being just preliminary so they hired me as um, basically locums or independent contractor um, and then i started working for them 
um, right away. Like literally, I think the next Monday I started okay. and started taking shifts. So, um, and then that's, I'm still doing that now that, you know, we're kind of waiting on other things, but. So where, where, where do things uh, stand right now? Like where do things stand right now? Because you're working, uh, you yeah. have the temporary injunction. Is the legal battle still ongoing? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, the temporary restraining order got, me until the injunction ruling and then the judge ruled in our favor on the preliminary injunction so i have the preliminary injunction uh, which is alex can correct me if i'm wrong but kind of indefinite right now um and so i'm working under that and then the next step will be um the restraining order or the um, non-compete was a year long so january 7th that year expires so then the question is okay after that year now, will the new hospital say, okay, even if they could enforce it, the time period is over. So now you can work full time. Um, but in the meantime, the injunction is still just preliminary. It's not a final ruling. So it's still kind of up in the air for that. Right. So, and so then um, I guess the other, just one other facet here, Lutheran has countersued Dr. Lankford. So they've, they have sued Dr. Lankford for breach of contract and, and they're alleging a few other claims. And they've also sued the hospital that Dr. Lankford is working at now. So those claims are ongoing. Um, so we're defending those claims. And also Lutheran has asked the court to dissolve the preliminary injunction, basically to, to take it away, um, which is something that they're allowed to do under the rules. Uh, so that's what we're working on now is, is responding to their request to dissolve the preliminary injunction and their claims against Dr. Lankford. So a um, couple of questions um, in the remaining 10, 12 minutes. One, is there any chance that the federal government comes out and says, these non-competes make no sense. It's a law that nobody should have a non-compete in their contract and resolve these issues. I don't want to get Alex out of a job, but mm -hmm. I really feel that you know, I mean, there's so much energy just listening to the energy that has been spent. Even the hospital now, they are suing you and they're countersuing. I mean, I mean, it, it just seems there's so much emotion that gets involved into this where occasionally when emotion interferes with decision-making, logic goes away. So is this ever on the table that the federal government might say, forget all of this stuff, or am I dreaming? Yeah, no, the FCC has a proposed rule now that would ban non-competes nationwide. Where is um, that going to go? So uh, I have no idea. That's a great question. I don't know. The, the industry lobby is very strong. So employers say we invest significant resources into our employees, and this is across industries. Their argument is we, we invest significant resources, we train these people, we give them the tools to succeed, and then they take all of that information and knowledge to our competitor and use it against us. I mean, that's essentially the argument in favor of non-compete agreements. Um, so the proposed rulemaking process is, is not my area of expertise and it's complicated, but my, my elementary understanding is the FCC has issued a proposed rule and then there's this period of time where anyone who's interested can comment on that and send the FCC their thoughts. Um, and then the FCC incorporates those suggestions into the proposed rule, and then there's some sort of final rule. Um, 
but I don't I mean, know. I don't yeah, know how that's I mean, going to turn out. I can see, I can see the argument of investing in you, right? I mean, if I'm joining a practice, I have no patience. There's a lot of investment. They give me space, computer, maybe marketing, uh, assistance, uh, give me some patience. I get that. But I think after a certain time, obviously, like I'm on my feet, I'm getting my own referrals because I'm a good doctor. I'm communicating better. I mean, I wish there was a time you say, okay, if you leave us in the first three years, uh, we invest a lot of time, then we enforce. But after three years, clearly, it's no longer the practice that is really investing in you. It's really at this point, you have really invested in yourself and your own growth. But that's logic and logic does not enter the equation here. Yeah, that, that's a difficulty with how contracts work that these these provisions don't kick in until you leave, right? So, yeah. I mean, I regularly have physicians with 10, 15 year old contracts that are leaving, but their non-compete's gonna kick in as so soon as they weird. leave. Yeah, so weird. yeah. David, why not pack up and just go to Michigan? I mean, just go 30, 50 miles away, go to Indianapolis, come to Chicago. I mean, why do you want to go uh, again? I mean, I'm sure that you are paying a lot of money for legal representation because the way it is. But why we commend you for fighting the battle. I mean, clearly, despite the fact I'm moderating this, but I'm clearly on your side here. But um Back up the bags and go somewhere and put this behind you and start fresh. We thought about it. I talked. I talked to my wife a lot about it. She's so she's a general surgeon, so her skills are very much in demand. So her getting another job probably not that hard, um, especially because she's exceptionally good at her job. So that doesn't hurt. But the, I mean, the fact of the matter is, like this this is where I live. This is my house. We built a house here. My kids are in school here. We like the community. Um, you know, my family is close. They're still in Detroit. My sister's in Chicago. My in-laws all live in Fort Wayne. My brother is an um, oncologist here. My sister-in-law is an NP here. We just have everything here. And I don't, I, you know, I don't, once again, I don't mean to be blunt, but I don't feel like I should be forced to move and be pushed out of my home because they made decisions that I personally don't think were right. So we talked about moving. We talked about going back to Detroit where, you know, we did training and have some roots there. Um, but it's just, I just, I just feel like I don't, I don't want to get pushed out of, of where I love because they made decisions that I don't agree with. So. Alex, um, had David decided not to work for a year, took a year sabbatical, right? Because the non-compete was one year. So he just took a long vacation for a year and did whatever he wanted to do, would this thing would have been over? Because it's only one year, right? I mean, under the contract, yes, the non-compete would expire. I think our argument and and what we believe here is that that would have harmed his career significantly um, and irreparably. I mean, he spent five years because in the community the building you, a referral base. Intensivist, yeah. And, right, because the skills deteriorate. Um, so, yes. Uh, I think that's that's sort of always one of the options is you can sit on your hands for a year and then go back to work. Um, but I think for, you know, a lot of reasons, that's not an option for a lot of people. You know, you lose your referral base, your your skills deteriorate in that period of time. Um, and, you know, we had testimony at the hearing that Fort Wayne and Allen County is a community that needs the services that he's providing. So it's not just Dr. Lankford, it's also 
critically ill children in Fort Wayne and Allen County. Um, so I think that that is, in my opinion, you know, outside of my job as a lawyer, I think that that is one of the worst parts of, of physician non-competes is you have qualified doctors who could provide care sitting at home, not doing that because of a contract provision. Yeah. Um, I, I learned about the story through an article that was written in uh, NPR, WFYI, Indianapolis. It's a PBS uh, outlet. And obviously, I wanted to highlight this topic because I think it's also important. Have you tried to leverage media, additional outlets to put some pressure? Because in the article I read, it seems like the Lutheran system refused to respond to the reporter who was writing the article in transparency, I did not attempt to reach out to them. I didn't think they would talk to me anyway. But um, um, I mean, sometimes this public pressure could work. I don't know. I mean, have you tried that? I don't think we've tried to do it like to pressure them by any stretch. But you know, I if if somebody asks for to talk about it, I I like talking about it. I think it's like you said, it's an important issue. I think it affects a lot of doctors. Um, both new coming out of out of residency and fellowship, but also like Alex was saying, doctors that have worked 10, 15 years that, you know, are just trying to stay in the community. Um, I mean, personally, there are a lot of small hospitals that I think should be against non-competes because in order to get a subspecialist, so like, let's say you need an oncologist. It's hard to get an oncologist to come to a small community, but if there's one that's working in a big academic center 20 minutes away, who wants to get out of academic and just do community oncology, he can't do that. You know, so if you're a small hospital, if he doesn't have a non-compete and he wants to do that, you could get him and you don't have to try and get somebody to move their whole family and everything. So I I think it's a it's an important issue that I think should be talked about more. I'm a little bit surprised it's not, but um, I appreciate you taking the time to do it because I think it's very, very important. So, yeah. I think um, a lot of physicians feel they're the underdogs, frankly. Um, it's not easy to fight a healthcare system. I mean, you have to remember, I mean, I, I, unless, most of these healthcare systems, the lawyers are employed and they actually have a salary, generous salary, but they're salaried. So there's no incremental cost sometimes by filing a lawsuit or something. I mean, I presume... <laughs> Uh, David, uh, maybe with you or Alex, is there anything I should have asked you and I completely did not ask you anything that you want to say or, uh, I mean, I, I these are the things I had in mind. Um, I'd like to hopefully, um, I don't know, bring you back in six, seven months. Maybe there's more information and hopefully all in, in your favor. But anything else I should have asked that I totally overlooked? Um, I, I can't think of anything. Alex, you got anything? Uh, I think the only thing I would add is is for any of your listeners that may be you know approaching that decision for the first time where they're leaving fellowship or, or they're coming out of residency and they're ready to start thinking about this. I know it, 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 there is expense associated, but it, it it's my opinion that it's always helpful if you're signing a contract, particularly one that you're going to be dealing with over the course of potentially five, 10 years have a conversation with a lawyer. It's worthwhile. Um, you know, even if you're not going to be able to successfully negotiate better terms, at least you'll have a really solid understanding of what the terms in your contract are. Um, and, and I do talk to a lot of people who are kind of surprised after the fact about the way their contract works. So, I, I mean, I think it's worthwhile, even if it's just an hour consultation with someone right. to right. talk through what your contract says. I, I, you know, I would always recommend that 
divorcing as much as I can from, you know, my interest obviously would be for people to want to do that with me. But um, I think just in general, it's, it's a value add. Well, uh, I really appreciate you taking time of, of your schedule. Uh, I know it's a, an important topic. It's sometimes not easy to talk about, but I suspect that listeners have a, a better view into what's going on. I And um, who knows? Um, as you mentioned, Alex, there's something in front of the FCC in terms of getting rid of this. I did read something about this probably six months ago, and I don't know where that is right now, but... Um, uh, Dr. David uh, Langford and uh, counsel Alex Pantos, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support and being on today's podcast. Please do tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast and let them know about Healthcare Unfiltered and a variety of topics that they can actually listen to on this show. Before I let you go, I'm going to ask you to subscribe to it, rate it, write a brief review, and of course, check out my book, Toxic Exposure. I'm going to leave you with a saying by Ronald Reagan, peace is not absence of conflict. It is the ability to handle conflict by peaceful means. Until next time, take care.